Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of Redefining Reality. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being you. Thank you for showing up and for caring and being interested. It means a lot to me and my guests. This week, we feature a brilliant conversation that I had with my friend Kevin Oroslan, the lion, the lion-hearted yogi, biohacker extraordinaire, mystic misfit, as it were. And Kevin is a friend that I met at the Bulletproof Biohacking Conference. You will hear in the beginning of this episode a little bit about that meeting. But essentially, we hit it off right away. Me and my brother Andrew went on a two and a half week road trip. And then when we came back to LA, we ended up staying uh, with Kevin and his roommates for three nights. And it was fantastic. Felt right at home. And naturally wanted to record a podcast as Kevin is a very interesting dude who's got some things to share and we vibe on a lot of the same things and so we dove into plants and favorite books philosophy of success uh, you know how to optimize your experience through various means whether that be movement meditation uh, nootropics different, uh, you know, brain enhancing supplements and stacks and routines and foods. We talked all about different herbs that can be smoked or vaporized in various combinations for various benefits and shamanism and spirituality and all this fantastic stuff, all the stuff that I live and breathe. So it was great to be able to geek out with Kevin and Kevin, you can find online at Kevin That's Kevin O R O S Z or Z for the Americans listening. Yoga.com. As well as through his platform called the Mystic Misfits. I believe they've got some stuff on social media. And I'll link to Kevin's Instagram. All that good stuff. Um, so if you want to reach out and connect to him and what he is doing in the LA area, then you'll be able to do that. And all the things that we mention are in the show notes at brianhardy.ca slash podcast. Head on over there. You'll see the episode with Kevin and everything will be linked up. And that's about it for me. If you want to show some love, please jump into iTunes, leave a rating, review, subscribe to the show, help the iTunes gods know that what we are putting out is valuable and that you like it. And that would make my day. Really would. Please make my day. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Do what you got to do. I know iTunes is a bit of a pain sometimes to get in and review and subscribe. I know, I know, I know. I've done it many times. But it would mean a lot. And it would be much appreciated. Any shares as well on social media. 
or if you want to just chat, or if you're interested in what we're talking about, then reach out. Let's let's talk. Let's talk. This is part of what this is all about, redefining reality, creating a global tribe of conscious, empowered individuals. That is part of this mission. So thank you for being here. And without further ado, enjoy this episode and have yourself a fantastic day. Much love, my friends. Oh, also, last thing. I end this with a song that I think y'all are going to love. It is called Awake by Satsang. You can find that on SoundCloud. And Satsang has been on my playlist repeatedly for the last six months or so. And I just love their vibe. I love their lyrics. I love their feel. And I think you will too. Much love. Peace. Enjoy this episode with Mr. Kevin the Lion Oroslan. And hanging in beautiful California, wrapping up what's been a magical three weeks, the details of which I'll be going into on a later date. But I'm here with my good friend and brother on the path, Kevin the Lion. Yes. And... (sighs) We connected at the Bulletproof Conference, which is the whole reason I came down to California. That was the uh, that was the trigger. That was the catalyst for this trip. And Kevin was holding it down with his team there, slanging coffee, making sure things go smooth, keeping the vibes high. And uh, we connected. Sure. Yeah, we connected over delicious, delicious ketogenic wine. <laughs> As many do, connecting over the libations of... Todd White in his outfit, Jive yes. Farm Wines. Yes, thank you, Todd. Thank you, Todd. And it's been a you know, powerful tribal feeling ever since. Totally. And so Kevin is a very fascinating dude, and I want to share him with y'all, get a bit of his story, dive into some, some of his expertise, some of the things he's been playing around with, experimenting with, Certainly. and... Uh, Hopefully that'll be that'll be valuable. I think it will be. It's already been valuable to me, so I imagine it's going to be valuable to many many others. Totally. So welcome, brother. Yeah. Thank you for uh, appearing in my narrative. Hmm. When I met you in at uh, Pasadena at this hotel after party, immediately felt resonance, and I think your vibe attracts your tribe is actually true. And hundred percent, it happens. Seems to be happening more and more. I think especially as a traveler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you put yourself out there and the, uh, the connections just happen and the world, the way I see it, the really, the world becomes a smaller place because you recognize how connected you all are. Everybody is and how few degrees of separation there really are between us. And I love it. I love it. I love feeling like, I'm building this sort of global family totally. that I can rely on and work with and collaborate with and party with and right. just have community, have community. That's something that like paradoxically we're missing, right? Like technology is connecting us more and more, but people more and more are reporting, you know, like aloneness, solitude, especially like in the United States, I think kind of the West as this project of the last millennia, it's it's profoundly disconnecting it turns out and uh, it's funny the canadian media and like print and communication theorist marshall McLuhan, mm. who was a big like 
this kind of savant in the field of the 20th century, understanding what technology is doing. Mm. Um, he also was kind of a contemporary and at least fan of uh, Buckminster Fuller. And he talk, he talks okay. about the nature of a, of a technologically connected world as tribal. He mm. talks about it as the global village. So it's mm. funny you talk about things getting smaller mm. and feeling like a, uh, you know, a, a shrinking. It feels, everything feels like it's getting closer together. It's because like the nature of the internet and what it's doing for the planet is tribal in nature. It's making a village again. Mm. It's shortening the, the roots, you know, of trade, of communication, mm. of intermarriage, of diplomacy. Mm. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Exciting time to be alive. And I mean, yeah, I'll just leave it at that for now. <laughs> what I really want to jump into, and I feel like we're going to jump around a little bit throughout this, um, and we'll sort of flow with it and, you know, make it happen. But, uh, I mean, we met at a biohacking conference. Right. And so if you're listening to this, you've probably heard of biohacking. Um, if you haven't, you're welcome, I guess. Um, it's just, I mean, I see it as the, the art and science of optimizing everything about your experience, your performance, your mood, your nutrition, just making the most out of life, you know, increasing your energy, feeling good, doing good, um, in the myriad of ways that there are to do that is why it's so cool and so fun. I think as for us as experimenters sort of on the front line, right. And so we met there and so. Kevin has, uh, you know, quite a rich background, I would say, or, I mean, compared to the average person, definitely in terms of, you know, trying various things and tinkering with stuff. And if we want to tie this into, I usually always like to dive into morning routines. Mm -hmm. So if this ties into that, we can do that all at once. But um, I would love to hear sort of, well, first of all, how did you end up getting into all this? Um, how you got pulled into the world of biohacking and sort of optimizing yourself and then um, hear what your favorite things to stack up and play with might be. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, I've always been uh, very scientifically minded, logically minded, which also made me skeptical, which made me an experimentalist or empiricist, you might call it. Um, it started with my mind. So became very interested in psychology and philosophy, which becomes kind of this experimentation with the mental plane. And that went for a while. And then I kind of was woken up by people in my life to diet and nutrition and realizing that organic food wasn't a scam. And like, you know, I grew up in Texas, so this was kind of a angle there is that it's more expensive. You know, people really aren't that into healthy eating. It was until I moved to Austin, Texas, went to school there, got introduced to that, tried out paleo. Then I started to like clue me in that there's a whole nother world and then realizing that maybe the information we've been fed, pun intended, on diet, it wasn't actually true at all. And for many people actually toxic, completely the opposite direction. So this leads to me experimenting with my life, getting to California, moving here, getting deeper into the diet community. And then it, for me, it was encountering um, kind of Joe Rogan and his podcast, um, Aubrey Marcus and On It and then Bulletproof and bulletproof coffee and that kind of plugged me into the biohacking world and showed me that it was a thing and immediately you know i'm 
I'm trying out multiple herbal supplements. I mean, I was supplementing before with like multivitamins, B vitamins, pretty basic stuff. But mm-hmm. then I was getting more into the Ayurvedic tradition, um, traditional Chinese medicine, this massive pharmacopoeia they have of like thousands of years of knowledge on plants. And it's just fantastic. And then it was just intermittent fasting and tech. Like I messed around with neurofeedback a little bit, never really had success with it. Mm. Um, actually, lately, a lot of people have been telling me about 40 years of Zen and some of these like neuroscientist led programs of neurofeedback where you actually are dropped into really deep meditation really quickly and then trained on how to reach this state. So I'm curious about that. But for me, biohacking was more about controlling my state. So this is diet for sure. This is cold showers was a big one. Um, the idea is that like hacking, right? Like, so like a hacker is someone who tries to find the shortcuts in a computer system. It's like kind of a really general way to talk about it. Or he tries to find leverage points. So a hacker wants to find points in the system that control a lot of others or connecting to a lot of other points, maybe a block of code or a method or an object in the code that's talking to a lot of other stuff. And manipulating that, so you manipulate the whole system. So it's the same way with health and wellness and exercise. You can hack your body by doing, you know, certain dietary regimens, fasting schedules, workouts, and timing mainly of your sleep, exercise, and your um, diet that really like have massive performance effects. You know, focus, creativity, really longevity is a huge one, as well as energy levels, maintaining them throughout the day. So. To tie this all in, it's like an example of a morning routine. Um, our morning routine here that we've been practicing and tweaking for a few years since I met my roommates in Santa Cruz. Um, it looks something like waking up, first thing, hyperhydration. So like 16 to 20 ounces of water with Himalayan salt, lemon or lime, and maybe even a little apple cider vinegar or cayenne pepper. And drinking this first thing will kind of like flush you out, replenishes the adrenals, gets the kidneys going, awakens the body. Um, we go from this right into a green tonic. So this is something like a bunch of uh, fats, you know, like avocado oil, maybe olive oil, um, medium chain triglycerides, really strong oils like uh, coconut oil um, or extracts of that. And then combining that with a bunch of green powders, um, superfoods, algae, um, maybe a plant protein or a collagen peptide that's like a, from bovine you combine all these things in kind of a morning tonic along with fresh greens and all these superfoods and when you kind of have maximum absorption the idea is you want to hit yourself in the morning with this awesome like tonic or elixir when you like are pure and the water helps that process would we'll do that and go straight into a 10 or 20 minute meditation like a sitting meditation sometimes most of the time for me, completely just with my breath, sometimes with headphones, if like I'm distracted or I need that extra guidance. Um, and this is just for biohacking, I think one of the ultimates is meditation. So meditation has to be a part of my day if I really want a centered day. Um, and then immediately after the meditation, um, making something uh, that's really a game changer for me and my life and my entry into biohacking, which is bulletproof coffee. So Bulletproof Coffee is something like, you know, this is a brand, but you can do this with anything. It's coffee or tea mixed with like tons of high quality fats. So this can look like cacao butter, grass fed or pasture raised butter. Um, Same thing with ghee, coconut oil, some combination of really strong fats in like a coffee or tea. And then you can fast on this. So that's like part of the morning routine is the intermittent fasting. And before beginning the day too, I would normally start with a gratitude circle. 
mm. or gratitude board. And maybe one thing I'm grateful for right now, one thing I'm grateful for in the future already, and maybe one person or situation I'm grateful for. Mm. And this is kind of the morning combo that takes maybe two hours total mixed in with like getting ready or whatever you have to do that just fires up your day. And mm. for me, it gives me four to six good hours of work. Whereas, you know, you can go eight to 10, but you're really pretending after a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole eight hour work day, it's so, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's been proven in, in a few studies now to not be effective. No. Right? When we work we less. lose productivity. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's like, let's stop kidding ourselves. Let's stop kidding ourselves that we're going to sit down and do, you know, ridiculous hours of productive focused work because it's just not happening no it's just not happening facebook is out there you have no you have no chance (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly yeah so that's pretty that's pretty pretty in depth i love that very similar to some of my um how i would how i would ideally structure things um i always like to get some movement in there whatever it is i don't care what it is jumping jacks bodyweight squats Sun salutations. Yeah. Soft tissue work. I love getting the, the, the you know, the kinks worked out mm. first thing. But no, that's pretty, that's pretty comprehensive. And movement kind of is missing in there, huh? Like, I, I just naturally kind of stretch right when I wake up. Um, one thing I started doing based on actually Batman, Bruce Wayne. Mm. And like, if you see in the dark night, like, you drop out of he bed jumps out of bed into push-ups. Yeah. And like, <laughs> it turns out I was reading like a few blogs and there's people out there that are like really into this. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I don't do it like violently, but I'll get out of bed, get into my like plank, my down dog, and then maybe 20 really like strong push-ups. Mm. And then immediately I'm like, I'm on. And so the rest of the stuff flows. Mm-hmm. But yeah, movement has to be a part of it. Mm. Somewhere in there. Nice. Totally agree. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I get to experience most of that morning routine today right and it was first of all it was delicious right (laughs) tonic delicious the coffee delicious and we we played with a few other things too we had some bacopa yeah yeah bacopa monterey Mm -hmm. it's a great little herb um it's really good for cerebral blood flow studies show it's like memory and attention as well Mm. um it's basically just this little this little herb i think it's I want to say Africa or parts of Asia, but you have to correct me on that. Well, I know it's in Ayurveda, so yeah. I assume India. Right, right. It's on, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it has a long history of use. Hmm. But this is one of those, I guess it could be classified as a neurotropic. It actually is in a lot of stacks. Um, but this is one you need to use cumulatively. So okay. you want 300, 150 to 300 milligrams a day. Hmm. Because over time, it like it's one of the ones that will build and give effects. Like I say, after thirty days is when you have like full effects. Cause your body's adapted to it. Really? So I've been doing it now for maybe like sixty days. I mean, I've missed a lot of days, of course. Like I don't always bring it with me traveling, but mm-hmm. um, I definitely, I really, enjoy, I, I like it. I, I'm convinced of its usefulness. Since I've started using it, I've noticed a total shift in cognition. And granted, there's lurking variables because I'm experimenting with all kinds of stuff. But mm-hmm. The Bacopa is just a nice baseline. It's mm-hmm. a good one. Yeah. Yeah, so we had some Bacopa. We had a little bit of uh, a choline stack. Mm-hmm. That was really nice. And then some good herbs blended up. And this is another really cool thing. Um, because, you know, a lot of people are off-put by smoking. 
totally. whether that's cigarettes or whether that's cannabis or whether that's whatever it is. Um, most of us, myself included, I never even considered smoking other things. Like, I mean, I never smoked cigarettes. I got into smoking cannabis in university, which was a game changer. Totally. But I never even considered, okay, there's like other things I could like mix or try or I tried smoking like a dream. Uh, speaking of the, the website, I am shaman that we were mm-hmm. speaking of earlier. Yeah. I bought some dream herbs from there and it said you can make tea and you can smoke it so that okay I'll do both and double my chances <laughs> <laughs> and it was the harshest most disgusting smoke I've ever experienced uh, I don't know if, if I should have ground it up better it was like like twigs uh, I'd have to look it up but it was a blend of like four or five different things but like twigs like big pieces of yeah. like, like plants like not you know not uniform not right. ground up and I, I think I put it into a bong or something, <laughs> and oh my god, it was harsh, so harsh. Um, so that's why I, I made that, and I made the tea, and I drank the tea as I tried to smoke this stuff. It was not a good time. Whoa. I didn't get any dream enhancement, and I'm pretty sure that my, the bag's been sitting in my like closet since then. I never touched it since. Huh. But that's just to say that there are a lot of other things that have been and that can be smoked. Or vaporized or inhaled, right. you know, taken through inhalation. And you also introduced us to some of your blend um, when we met. Right. And so let's, I want I'll to go through that blend and see, I like, mean, get a little bit on the ingredients. Totally. So, so yeah, for me, I, I didn't smoke for a long, long time. It's very against it. Really against the idea of like how unhealthy it was for your lungs, right? Um, but it turns out that, you know, humans across the earth have been using plants and inhaling them via combustion because it's actually a great delivery mechanism and whoever figured this out first you know it's just probably pretty intuitive once fire was in play mm-hmm. um but when you when you combust the most of them are plant alkaloids the chemicals in plants a lot of them are terpenes polyphenols as well and inhale them they, they get immediately uploaded into the bloodstream and so you have like a systemic effect pretty quickly, which is a great delivery mechanism when you're talking about medicine or interfacing with plants and their chemicals. Um, so for me, it was really, the beginning was cannabis in university and that kind of just shifted my perspective on really all plants in general. Um, and then later um, getting out of that, I was introduced to the idea of a spliff, which very European kind of, modern take on it which is tobacco combined with uh, the flower and you know from there you can just get crazy and i first met someone who was rolling with stinging nettle and like blue lotus which is a dream herb it's an egyptian dream herb actually blue lotus girl on the nile it's mm. pretty interesting um but yeah so after encountering that i just started experimenting and found that one Pure cannabis to me was often too powerful, especially with how much power creep has occurred, has like accrued in the cannabis industry. All the hybridization, the growing for strength. It's just, it's, it's, it's too absurd. And, you know, I went through the phase of like being like dysfunctionally high. And then you go and realize you like the creativity and focus parts, but you don't maybe want that full spectrum. And so that's when like tobacco was introduced to me. I'd never smoked cigarettes, but I found that tobacco was a really nice balance. 
So that's interesting. You get energy and creativity, kind of a yin and yang together. Um, some might say Shiva Shakti. Mm. Shiva being tobacco, masculine, pointed energy. Um, Shakti being feminine, more cannabic, much more fluid. And so from there, you can get into dream herbs. Um, some of my favorites are Blue Lotus, which is a nice little like floral alkaloid. Um, it can help dream um, induction, lucid dreaming and vividness. It's just funny you say like smoking and drinking as a tea. That was my first lucid dream experience was distilling actually a white wine with Blue Lotus, which that's really mm. cool. If you look that up, like look up Blue Lotus um, wine infusion mm. and then making a tea as well and drinking these over the course of a night and then also smoking a little Blue Lotus, just a little bit. And then had a really powerful dream experience from that. Um, so Blue Lotus is a great one. Damiana is another great one. It's another one you can smoke or make a tea. This is like a slight euphoria. It's often marketed as an aphrodisiac. It's a vasodilator, really nice flavor. That one's great. Another one is Kalia Zaktichi. This is a Mexican dream herb. This one's a little more harsh tasting, a little more bitter. Um, How do you spell that? It's a Kalia K or C-A-L-E-A. And then... Z A C Zaka E T H E C H I. Kalia Zaktichi. Yeah, something very close to that in Latin. Okay. But yeah, that's like a Mexican uh, kind of dream herb. And that one is very powerful. I, I never got lucid, but I had some crazy vivid dreams off that. It's a little more bitter. So that one is harder to find too. Mm. Maybe I'd, make, I'd recommend Blue Otis and Damiana first. And then mm. if you want to get really smooth on. Um, rolls or blends or whatever you're doing lavender mm. easy one lavender is mm. easy cools the smoke you can eliminate some of the tobacco effects actually cools the lungs um other ones that if you, you can get really crazy there's like marshmallow root deer's antler um some of these herbs uh mugwort's another one mugwort's mm. a popular dream herb these a lot of these are anti-asthmatics so they can actually help you know prevent uh, inflammation in the lungs as you're smoking they also just have great flavor and also kind of mm. some of that slight euphoria. So there's just a whole world really. And like playing with the ratios and mm -hmm. playing with the blends is always like entertained me. And mm -hmm. I love sharing that. Yeah. Well, I just want to repeat this, <laughs> that smoking certain things can be beneficial for the lungs. It's true, man. It's hard for our minds to get wrapped around when all of the programming is smoking kills, smoking cancer, smoking cancer. What's well, the the additives in the American tobacco industry? It's just notorious. They've changed the tobacco plant. The tobacco plant that grew wild in North America before the Europeans arrived is a different plant, different ratio, a lot more nicotine, a lot more alkaloids. It's not something you could smoke like you know Virginia Slims and Marlboros now. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's been turned into a cash crop. Yeah, precisely. Um, and so, I mean, that just goes to show. And I mean, I would even argue, and I think it's there's a pretty good case to be made, that cannabis by itself can be uh, beneficial. Even though it can be a little harsh, um, they've shown that it re actually reduces the risk of lung cancer, right? So how's that for it? You know, smoking something is going to reduce your risk of lung cancer. I'm going to swallow that pill. And um, it improves lung capacity. Right? And this right. is where I love it for yoga or for anything, any, any, just relaxing, sinking into presence, really awakening your breath, awakening your diaphragm. And that, 
like athletes will use this as a performance enhancer. Dude, Michael Phelps, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a phenom. Yeah. He's a stoner. Exactly. So it's just uh, an, an interesting thing because I think it's still very, very out there, um, this idea that those things can be beneficial. Um, and there was something, oh, there was something, what was I going to tie that to? I forget. It'll come back. If it's meant to come back, it'll come back. So, yeah, so playing with these blends, right? Playing with these different blends that provide a very um, functional um, and enhancing property, right? And treating it as medicine, right? Having respect exactly. for these things. Um, doing it in, ideally, some sort of a ceremonial or ritual context, giving thanks. All that makes a difference, right? All that makes, makes it has an impact. And or I remember what I was going to talk about. So yeah, tobacco, tobacco. Interesting because, yeah, I mean, all of the shamanic traditions of North and South America heavily have sort of tobacco at the center in many ways, right? Yeah. As such a revered and sacred and and you know respected plant and spirit. Um, and a friend of mine, I I need to look into this more, but it makes intuitive sense. A friend of mine told me that. Um, a master he was studying with told him that the spirit of tobacco doesn't want to be in your lungs, but it mm. loves to be in your mouth. Mm. And I really got that after my time in Peru because I had to smoke mapacho, we called it, right? Peruvian tobacco. I had to smoke it every day as part of the training to master the mapacho as part of right. the training, right? Because you, you're blowing smoke on everything during ceremony and during ritual. And I really, it's, it's not that you're actually fully deeply inhaling all that smoke um, because it will be harsh in the lungs and you will have buildup of some potentially not good things, but rather to just inhale it and just taste it and let the smoke soak into the mucous membranes of the mouth. So you're still getting those beneficial al uh, alkaloids or nicotine mm -hmm. or whatever's in that mixture. Um, but you know, as 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 the white man in quotes does, they'll come and pervert and corrupt and you know, commodify, commodify, exploit the natural world people, natural peoples. Um, so that's where the, the tobacco train sort of went off the rails, I think. Right. Right. I mean, it's it was one of the main cash crops of the settlers, the mm -hmm. the first pilgrims and colonists. You know, they. They saw tobacco and they brought it back to Europe and it was all the rage when tobacco caught fire in Europe among the uh, elite first and the sort of the, the landed people. They just loved that shit. You know, mm. it's interesting because tobacco caught on before coffee or chocolate. Also exports of the new world. Mm. Um, tobacco became like a staple in the pipe of every nobleman by, you know, the 16th, 17th century and like fancy parts of Europe and then to the common man after that to where cigarettes became ubiquitous um, and I think that's when the plant evolution diverged they started planting it growing it mass producing it the kind of jungle tobacco in Central and South America you know wasn't used it was this kind of plains tobacco grown in the American South and that became a cash crop and so the, the culture changed like you're talking about Shamans have used tobacco to build inner heat, to 
use this like the masculine force you know tobacco is kind of this solar plant and it's used for purification and you know all of that went out the window and it became a kind of energetic or um you know a relaxation crutch by the common man by workers and by noblemen it was like a sign of um culture mm. and status to like have tobacco you know and be able to smoke this at your dinner party mm. yeah yeah so just an interesting like take right like because the history of the world and trade is a lot of it's driven by plants many of them are drugs of some kind right like the tea trade is a perfect example that's one of the first ones yeah the tea trade the spice trade tobacco coffee all these things sugar. which yeah, yeah sugar all these things which you know as we're growing up in the you know modern world i mean i was born in the 90s uh they're just everywhere right and you take it for granted you totally. think oh this is just the way it is people drink coffee in the morning some people go and smoke i mean smoking is really losing uh, losing, losing a, lot a lot of favor of, yeah um and people put sugar in their coffee and or they make tea or whatever um and you just take it for granted that these things are everywhere. When a couple hundred years ago, or however many hundred years ago, they were in very small pockets and right. then spread across the planet in these giant distribution networks that, uh, you know, completely changed cultures and, and uh, built. I mean, I feel like North America was built on coffee and cigarettes, Probably. right? Um, stimulants, you know, focus, suppress your appetite, work harder, right. burn the candle down. Um, and that persists to this day, right? How common is, is coffee? And it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And people, a lot of people just, you know, they rely on it. They need it every day because they're so, they're so burnt out that they need that stimulation um, just to function, you know? And... That's, that's not the ideal situation. You want to use it as an enhancer. Right. You want to use it in the right way. You want to nourish your body so you can handle that extra stimulation. Right. And you don't have the, the, the crash on the other side. Certainly. You want a good foundation to like jump off of as mm. opposed to using it to get to like a level. You know, just get back to baseline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting now seeing where things are going. Um particularly in the getting back to this the smoking and plant medicines of sorts um, and just before I forget on that on that level you know on how civilization in the world has been shaped by plants I believe it was the botany of desire by Michael Pollan I think that's the book I'm thinking of I think that's the book that's the book I'm thinking of <laughs> where he goes into examining the history and the relationship of humankind and, and civilization with plants. And in particular, four, uh, four plants in general. Let's see if I can remember them all. One is potatoes, which are a staple in many, many, many yeah. places. Especially cold climates. Yeah. Uh, one is apples, mm -hmm. which... Uh, I mean, he goes into the whole story of like the real Johnny Appleseed and what his whole thing was about, which then led to a lot of alcoholism, actually, because they would make Applejack, right. hard cider, essentially. Um, 
and he would plant these apple trees and then come back and then take the apples. There was like a deal. So it's like, you're going to grow my apples. I'm going to come back and take them and like make booze <laughs> and like, you know, sell that to people. Classic. Um, and what are the other two? Uh, cannabis is one, which I mean, huge, huge impact on human consciousness and society. And I believe it all came... Well, I'm not sure. Maybe you have some, some insider knowledge. Most of it came from India. Yeah. I mean, right? the, the ancient Vedic culture. Mm. And I've read this a few different places, but uh, one of the main guys on that I've read on this is Terence McKenna. Mm. He talks about how Hindu society, you know, especially the ancient Vedic art and poetry and the ritualism of the priestly caste is very influenced by the hashish intoxication mm. or like if this is this the imagery and uh mosques mm. in islamic civilization you know islamic being a retroactive term but arabic um ancient medieval t like kind of thought and architecture and the culture was very influenced by hashish and turns out that's mm. where coffee came from too they were some of the first ones to use coffee beans and mm. kind of make the coffee shop at the cafe um, atmosphere. And yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to think that uh, plants influencing culture by influencing human consciousness, which is exactly what's happening. Like as, as you include more plants in your diet or animals that are eating the plants, you're including new chemicals, which can interface with the human neurochemical and biochemical system. And so your diet, you know, the, the saying you are what you eat is, you know, very applicable. Like it's, as you introduce more, you know, mutagens, essentially, you're changing everything. You're changing the physical constitution of your body. Mm. You're changing the neurochemical constitution of your brain, which is then changing your behavior patterns and beliefs. Mm. So I think, cannabis in ancient culture was used although there's you know there's some debate there and there's lines of evidence that scholars can debate about um there's our friend biggie smalls biggie smalls is a very good guard dog the best he, best pit bull around when he senses people are outside he's the best mm -hmm. um <laughs> so there's some debate around that but there's debate on like how much it was used but um, a lot of scholars agree that like especially hashish and kind of stronger forms were present in ancient civilization in edibles and right Bangladeshis and yes yeah especially in india and then you know this resurfaces um with the opium trade and you know the breaking of great britain into the eastern markets it resurfaces in the you know 18th and 19th century we have like the hashish eaters like bands of poets and you know kind of avant-garde artists who are eating it and proliferating its use and you see it propel up into the early 20th century where it's like, you know, the devil's weed and like reefer, and, mm. you know, Satan's cabbage and like all this crazy shit, mm -hmm. like all this propaganda around it because it like returned to the West. Yeah, but it never really left, you know, it was, it's, it grows anywhere. Mm -hmm. One of the hardiest plants. It's been used for rope, textile and construction far more than it's been smoked throughout mm -hmm. history. Hemp is like one of the most useful. I mean, per capita, I've heard arguments that it is, by acre and by weight and water and time investment, probably the most beneficial plant and the most useful based on the strength of its fiber, 
the use of its leaves, the fact that multiple parts of it are edible, you know, it's just it's yeah. incredible. And then on top of all that, there's this part you can smoke yeah. or eat. Yeah, and the almost perfectly balanced omega ratio, right. the complete plant-based protein. I mean, it's just, it's too good. <laughs> it's, too, yeah. it's too good. It's way too good. It's too good. And two things that I want to just uh, point people towards in regards to all this are uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrer. Fantastic resource to learn about the history of hemp and cannabis. And something that's actually uh, profiled in that book, which is the Hemp for Victory campaign mm. that the U.S. government ran in World War II, um, encouraging people to grow hemp because they needed it to... Well, World War II or World War One, I'm not sure which World War, but one of the World Wars, Hemp for Victory, look it up. It is, uh, they encouraged people because they needed it for the ropes and for the sales right. and for the supplies to fuel the war, right? And then shortly after they changed their tune and corporate interests get involved and yeah. industries get involved. The lumber industry. Lumber. Lumber lobbies oil, majorly. Petroleum because, products. Right. They'd be put out of business because huge. hemp's too efficient. Huge, huge. And so it's beautiful to be in this time where we're seeing a few countries and a few states really pioneer. What does it look like when we let this out? When we legalize this? When we decriminalize it? When we, um, you know, just use it. Use it for what it is. It's like God's greatest gift to humanity. Let's use it. So you got places like Colorado and Washington and Oregon and yeah. all these places that are really breaking ground and benefiting immensely because of it. And I mean, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before this, you know, totally. really becomes just commonplace. And I just wanted to pull back the last plant of the botany design, um, which goes into four main plants that are representative of four different sort of mm, things humans are interested in. So the first one actually is the tulip. Oh. The tulip, which is grown just for beauty, just for appreciation. You don't eat tulips. You don't right. use medicine for tulips. But uh, they go into uh, how the cultures of, I think, the Netherlands um, is where it started, and people's gardens and how much how much effort and intention and pride they had in their, in their gardens and making it super beautiful and using crazy setups with mirrors to reflect light in different places oh. it's wild but so the tulip for beauty uh cannabis or marijuana for intoxication or uh tuning in i would say uh, the apple for sweetness and the potato for control this is just coming from the wiki um but i mean yeah if you have a giant stack of potatoes that you know are going to be edible for however long you can control things. You can ration things. You can plan. Right. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. But it just goes to show um, to the idea that, you know, are we really – who's in control here? Who's leading the ship? Um, is it the plants that are, you know, sort of uh, seducing us into using them for various things, which then – in evolutionary standards, we're doing them a huge favor and propagating their kind, right? Totally. Um, Who is in control? You know, the plants evolved billions of years before us. They're kind of the elders on this planet. Mm. By partnering with them, 
we could we could be you know i think we are in a deep symbiotic relationship that is hopefully um, beneficial to both parties where we are getting a massive food source we're getting structures Mm. we're getting technology we're getting material resources also possibly consciousness resources we're getting gnosis is a word in greek that's like the logos or the true knowledge some might call it god but it's kind of transcends that it's more of a category of knowledge that's a direct and very poignant for the human condition and plants can provide this this is what many of the shamanistic and medicine traditions are about so plants i think are influencing human culture on a much deeper and wider scale than anyone may be willing to admit mm-hmm. because of our idea of what plants are I, I had to be taught that plants were like alive, you know, on, on, a, on a mental plane, you know, growing up. And I forget the first time moms told me plants were alive. And it's like, it's kind of a revelation mm-hmm. because you don't see them as equal to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't get up and move. They can't talk languages like we do. Um, but it's kind of maybe they figured out maybe we don't need to or that just wasn't their path. Um but I, the same thing for me came through actually working in the forestry industry in the, uh, the municipality where I was, uh, where I was, where I grew up, really. Right. Um, this is the city of Brampton, Brampton, Ontario. Brampton. And I worked as a summer student with their urban forestry division, which was pretty much the best summer job ever. Um, nice. And I just just being around trees and learning about trees and how they grow and how they grow with intention, you know, they're conscious beings. It was incredibly impactful, completely reshaped the way I view them and the respect that I have for them. And then I went straight from there to Peru, right? And then jumped into the shamanistic worldview of that actually these plants have a spirit and that spirit is essentially assisting, wants to help assist us in our evolution, wants to help bring us up, wants to offer its gifts like any living thing really does. I feel like that's, that's what really, really why we're here is to offer what we can, offer our gifts. And that these trees and plants and things are here and they're conscious and we can communicate them with them. We can open up a direct line if we so choose to figure out what the, the gift, what the medicine is, right? And so even now, my Western mind has a hard time integrating that. Right. Because of I, the I, science, I think because it, of the skepticism. Yeah. The skept- yeah, the skepticism it runs deep in the West, man. It's like so deep. And I think it has a largely to do with language. The word spirit has a lot of freight, carries a lot, because it's been used, you know, in Western thought and literature in a religious context a lot. It's been used in a non-material context a lot. And so this, this is something that baffles the Western mind. Now, if you start to take a step back, and maybe zoom out linguistically, I could see an understanding of the shamans using the term, you know, there's a spirit in the plant. 
as a, as a gloss or a linguistic tag that are pointing to something. There's some kind of intelligence or entelechy. Um, entelechy is just a Greek word that means like the interconnectedness of life and knowledge and kind of a group mind or an entelechy, the, the ground of being upon which consciousness can arise. And so plants may be more tapped into this field, if you will, of living things than we are. And so from our perspective, it seems like a spirit. It seems like a voice or an entity is often reported. Um, it seems like something outside of ourselves that has autonomy. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we're very wary of it. And so therefore, we don't understand it. We slap spirit on it. And this prevents, you know, maybe more conscious inquiry into it. Um, I think there's certainly something going on. It has to do with biology. It has to do with evolution. It has to do with our neurotransmitters and how we've evolved with plants. Um, I also think it might have to do with the fact that we're only seeing, like we were talking about this yesterday, uh, 1% or less of the visible light spectrum. And so we have no idea what we're coexisting with can't even see most of reality a lot of animals can see ultraviolet or infrared we're very we're dialed into a very narrow bandwidth of what reality actually is via the scientific instruments we've put to work to study it so i think it's it's perfectly possible that our language just hasn't upgraded enough like it hasn't upgraded to the point where the shamanistic terminology can be verified scientifically. Yeah, and I think we are um, fast approaching a time when it will be, right? And one thing that I loved, um, um, and and a favorite teacher of mine on this whole topic of shamanism is uh, Alberto Biordo. Mm -hmm. And I came across his stuff. It was an audio book called, I think, The Way of the Shaman, or The Power of the Shaman. Uh, that I got my hands on, or rather got my neurons tuned into mm-hmm. yeah. um, shortly after arriving in Peru. And that was a game changer, huge game changer. And so he talks about shamans as being the first biohackers, right? The first people who are experimenting and trying different things and playing with plant physiology and biochemistry and interfacing with that in order to see more. In order to understand more, right? And so, yeah, you know, the the Western scientific method has given us so much. And though it is limited, and though it's interesting to see the sort of scientific dogma that has evolved through it, right? It's sort of become the new church. The thing that it was the thing that it was rallying against, it has sort of become in, in the in that people have blind faith. To the scientific method without recognizing all the interests that are directing science right and the the lack of integrity through a lot of a lot of times and just the fact that a lot of basic science isn't ever done because it's not profitable i mean that's a whole nother topic um and so we're in this space where getting back to what you're saying about language and about um, being able to to wrap our heads around this idea that plants are, you know, beings, um, and 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 really, 
spiritual in nature. And this is what I love about the shamanistic worldview or the, or the way that you can use plant spirit medicine, um, which is that essentially everything is vibrational. Has, everything has a vibrational signature that then informs the gross physical matter, right? Spirit infuses into matter. Matter comes from spirit, right? Is my understanding. And so the way that the shamans, at least in the Amazon work, is they forge these relationships through dieting or through, um, you know, fasting, prayer, you know, um, discipline, all these things to build that practice, build that relationship to where the plant thinks, okay, now, okay, you're worthy. You're worthy to receive this and will give them its song, right? And this is the song, the Icaros, that they sing during ceremony. And the idea being that with, with the song, you don't need the plant because you have the, um, the more higher level medicine, in a sense, that you can call in, that you can bring in to fix. It's going to help fix the physical uh, imbalance that's going on which is why we mostly go to plants, right? We have a physical illness or a disease, but it's going to fix it at a higher level, right? Which to me is a much more elegant way to heal and to do medicine. And so it's exciting seeing these things fuse together um, and seeing how, okay, we're getting to a place where our science can help explain that. And before I forget, just, just the idea that you mentioned there about uh, neurotransmitters, right? And this is an idea I first heard from Daniel Vitalis, which is that we're deficient in these certain categories of, uh, of, of foods or herbs that are sort of the neurotransmitter side of things, right? Things like mushrooms, things like different cactuses. Um, and so wrapping our heads around that to be a whole human and to have balanced, quote unquote, balanced nutrition We've, we can't exclude these these categories of plants, right? We got to bring them in, and that's that's why things like microdosing really excite me. You know, like microdosing of mushrooms, microdosing of various substances. Yeah, I'd love to hear sort of maybe a, a little bit about what your experience has been mm. with some microdosing, depending on the substance that that is. You know, allegedly, not allegedly, whatever. Um, and to see maybe where you think this is going or where, 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 where one might take this. Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's just fascinating because it's all diet. Like you're saying, bringing these things in where we're deficient. Um, ostensibly you only would take from the environment things you couldn't make yourself. So diet seems to be a quest to bring in energy and material to rebuild the physical body grow the physical body, heal the physical body. Um, but as we've been talking, there seems to be more than just the physical body, at least the mind, and if not a spirit, a soul, some kind of connection to the non-physical world. And so I think there's a lot of evidence. And if you go down these, these tracks, um, there's several thinkers out there doing work on this. One is uh, R. Gordon Wasson, um, is a big one. He's a, like kind of the father of ethnomycology. He studies, you know, mushroom cults and traditions across the world. Uh, they're ubiquitous in Central and South America, and 
Mexico to some extent. They're also found in Tunguska, Siberia. There's, you know, there's evidence of like chillums or implements for becoming intoxicated, whether this is opium or ancient strands of psilocybin cubensis, psilocybe cubensis. Um, it, it seems like human beings have been using plants besides food and shelter for a long time. And even in the, the Rig Veda and the, the four Vedas, the source texts of Hinduism, um, there's lots of prayers to something called Soma. And Soma in Sanskrit is referring to some kind of body healing, spiritually empowering substance that the priests, the priests were taking, the kings were taking. Um, something seems to be here involving modulating or biohacking ourselves by using plant compounds in the environment. And so if you follow the, you know, the, the New Yorker, the Huffington Post, um, if you follow MAPS, the Multidisciplinary um, Association for Psychedelic Studies, they're doing a lot of good work. There's several labs around the country now studying um, psychoactive plants, and this microdosing movement has showed up in the press now. And this is something a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are using, a lot of coders, a lot of people in creative fields. And the idea is that you would um, take some of these substances at a sub-threshold dose. So you go into very, very slight perceptual effects and body felt feeling effects while gaining, you know, enhanced perception, creativity, kind of a more sensitivity to the world, a sensitization to the world, both to other humans empathetically and also to your own mind um, mindfully. So this is kind of the ultimate neurotropic smart drug or, you know, med it's a type of medicine. It's a, it's a, instead of going fully into the experience, you're just going to the edge to like be in the field, but maybe not, you know, diving so deep. So you remain very functional and very like physically active, very mentally productive. And instead of having, you know, the profound spiritual insights you'll hear people talk about with these things, you have more, you know, something like uh, Adderall without the side effects to, to, to really dumb it down into language or, you know, something like creativity and focus over long periods of time that's sustainable while um, generally kind of inhibiting anxiety, negative self-talk. You know, there, there seems to be both a performance and perceptual component as well as a healing component with a lot of them. And the, the brain studies coming out are really what's powerful. They're doing um, fMRIs now on brains under the influence of psilocybin or lysergic dithalamide, lysergic acid dithalamide or acid. Um, what you see is, I mean, the, the way that the article, I think, in one of the uh, media sources put it is it returns to like kind of a child state in the brain where you see something um, called hypofrontality, which is a release of the prefrontal cortex and kind of these very discriminatory executive function cortical areas and go back more into the whole brain. And you see nodes connecting a lot more. Um, you see semantic networks activating among a lot of different cells. And what you're just seeing is just more of the brain lighting up together as opposed to maybe so much top down, it becomes more bottom up. And feeling state, emotion, um, 
these kind of intelligences that we don't associate with problem solving, right? Just straight problem solving, like the tool brain, the monkey mm-hmm. brain. It's like manipulating its environment, outcome based. Mm-hmm. You're released into more creative modes while still being able to use the monkey brain that uses tools and, and solves problems. Mm-hmm. And this combination is very potent. And so I see in the West, this is the way we're coming back into the shaman and his hut and his trance and his medicines. We're coming back through science and like this whole full circle effect where the businessmen and creatives will validate it just because it works. You can tell whatever story, but it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, arguably Silicon Valley itself has been built on a lot of these substances and what came out of the 60s and it seems like now we're having sort of a resurgence of that, but we have the internet. So we can share more factual, more objective information about these things, right? You don't have the governments uh, able to just broadcast their propaganda at the expense of all the truth. And so it feels like we're in this resurgence of that time, um, but we're going to, it's going to land more sustainably. It's going to land and really take root. Um, and really thrive in the next generations, in our generations, in our kids' generations. And it's just going to become undeniable, right? It'd be undeniable. And we're going to look back at this time and think, what were those idiots doing? Yeah. Demonizing the most useful substances, arguably, on the planet? That's madness. I mean, it's just, it's the cycles of history, you know? The truth is first, you know, powerfully denied. And then it's persecuted, and then it's accepted as common sense. You know, it's it's hard it's hard to shift mindset, um, and it takes generations. Mm-hmm. But maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe, maybe we could do it in one. To. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very possible. There's something about these these plants that seem to uh, catalyze, or compress, or speed up evolution, so to speak, in that. They allow profound realizations, profound transformation very rapidly in one's personality, behavior, or habits that might take a lot longer through sheer discipline or like the slow accumulation of knowledge Mm. by meeting people with different views than you Mm. or absorbing them from like print, you know, Mm -hmm. records, oral Mm -hmm. print traditions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I look forward to when our society has integrated these things and we've got programs and we've got medicine people and we've got rites of passage that maybe use some of these things to integrate the best of the old, right? The ancient wisdom with modern tech. Yeah. Which is, I mean, to me, that's the sweet spot. Totally. That's the balance point. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... I would love to get through a couple, uh, not necessarily rapid fire questions, but just things that I really like to include. So we already got the morning routine. Something that a lot of people don't talk about or think about is evening routines. Hmm. Curious if you've done much thinking or experimenting. Evening routines, some some would argue are more important. Um, A lot of the successful kind of entrepreneurs I get the privilege to be around really talk about evening routines. Um, just to really sum it up and get the quick and dirty, one is you want to install flux on any device you have and block blue light. That's the big one. 
Um, after the sun sets, you really want to stay with red or orange light, um, very long wavelength. You don't want blue light because it's going to inhibit the production of melatonin and fuck up your sleep patterns, basically. Um, that's a big one. Also, just like getting off the smartphone, even even having the blue light filter on your devices an hour before bed, you know, every successful person you hear will eliminate smartphone or laptop use or like a TV and read. Mm. Preferably by candlelight or by a red light. Like you can read, you can meditate. Um, it's a good time to make love. It's to do something that's not electronic, not super stimulating. Get more into your body, a massage, maybe a nice bath. You want to cool down um, before sleep. You really want to power the brain down because you actually can start going to uh, alpha waves in the brain before sleep and like get into that meditative space. So then you can just drop straight into theta and delta and get really restorative sleep. Mm. Uh, definitely an hour before bed. That's a huge one. And also you want to you want to sleep naked if you can and cold. You want to be in a cold, dark environment. It's very important to be in darkness because this is how we evolved is to find cold, dark spaces. And this is where we slept for the night being mm. uh, diurnal and not being able to function at night. Mm -hmm. Okay. I love it. I love it. And other one books, impactful book, maybe recently, maybe over your journey. What's, what's wow. a, a couple titles, a title or two that, uh, that comes to mind. So recently, two of the most powerful I've gotten into, and it's taken me a while to get here. The first one is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, this is published in 1937. This is the beginning of a lot of what we see now in the personal development movement and the entrepreneurial movement. And this, this book is a game changer. Go on YouTube. The whole book is on there. It's also on Audible. It's, it's, it's well circulated. Um, I took it kind of at face value as kind of a cheesy concept at first, maybe just because of my own limiting beliefs, but getting into it now, I'm realizing the power. It's a masterpiece. Um, Napoleon Hill is just like a scholar who studied all the best businessmen that built America. The book spawns from a conversation he has with Dale Carnegie, which brings me to my second book, which is intimately tied up with it. And that's how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. And this is one I just got into after thinking grow rich again one that's been on my list for a while But for the same kind of personal development reasons in the past I avoided it mm. um, But this book is fantastic. It's case studies a very sober understanding of what actually works in business and relationships with influence and talking to people um, The title is kind of off-putting. It's not so much like how to win friends and like be competitive It's more like how to understand human nature mm -hmm. and he's, he's deeply interested in like you know, Lincoln and Roosevelt, and he's studying the great men of his time and wondering how they are so successful leading men and, and, and being, you know, good husbands, good fathers. And like, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And these two books are from an old school. It's from the beginning of the 20th century. And for me, they're very sobering and beneficial getting lost as you can in the current world of just like rapid fire, blasting personal development everywhere, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, it seems like the current, you know, the current state likes to uh, overcomplicate things, right? I mean, it helps for selling books that you have some new, some new amazing twist to something old. Um, but yeah, definitely go to the source. Go to the beginning, go to the source, find the potent uh, sort of starting point for what has been, been birthed. Um, 
and jump into that. A great one, if you want to really dive into some of this, um, the Prosperity Bible, mm. which actually has Think and Grow Rich in it. Oh, it's a okay. collection yeah, yeah, yeah. of like 40 books, most of them from the early 1900s. And, uh, oh, so clear, so clear and so poignant and so applicable to the modern day. Um, so I love that. Yeah, Think and Grow Rich, Dale Carnegie, fantastic, fantastic. Um, documentaries. Are you a man of documentaries? I do. I, I haven't been watching many lately, but I went on a tear um, a few years ago. The best one recently and the, the most recent one I've watched is I'm Not Your Guru. Tony mm. Robbins. This is his new kind of documentary. And for anyone who's new to Tony Robbins and the kind of the self-empowerment field and life coaching, you know, all this, this is a good documentary to watch to see what an actual retreat looks like. It's a documentary crew following one of his, you know, retreats. And you're seeing him work on people. You're seeing the people in the crowd banding together, going through it. It's it's very powerful, and that documentary will move you. Um, I promise it, it will sh it will shake you mm -hmm. in a good, in a very good way. The best way. Yes. Holy! When I saw that, I was just blown away. I thought, How do I learn this? How do I do this? Like this is incredible, incredible. And he gets such a bad rap as, or not a bad rap, just. People think he's a motivational speaker. He's not a fucking motivational no. speaker. He's a human performance and relationships and just dynamic change expert. Like, how yeah. do people grow? How do people let go of the past? How do people break through, right? So that's, yeah, that's fantastic. It's a fantastic, fantastic documentary. And then the last one that I'd like to talk to is... Something you either recently or currently are in the process of letting go. Mm. And you can even speak about this. I would invite you to speak about this having let it go. Like speak about it. Put it in the past, essentially. Right. Like use language. Hack it. Put it in the past. Nice, nice. So <laughs> for me, a big letting go. And this is something that was happening last night at the ecstatic dance and kind of just releasing into that experience. Um, for me, it's letting go of this belief. Um, a limiting belief in money and its inherent um, negativity or its inherent ability to corrupt. So I think from my upbringing, I kind of inherited a belief about money that it's just something to be hoarded, something to be used conservatively. You know, it's never seen in a mindset of abundance. And so this is very like illogical as I shifted into abundance mindset and started becoming very positive in every other aspect of my life, I've realized the one piece of my life that's kind of lagged behind is money. Mm. And so I'm very aware in my life in the past of when I've been very free and open with money and transparent. Those are the times I received the most money. And this kind of, you know, the metaphysical law of attraction kind of crowd and all of that stuff. Um, I, I challenge you to really examine that if you're curious because there is something about being fluid to receiving and taking energy um, from the universe and then offering, giving energy. And there seems to be a balance there, a one-to-one -one balance. So I have let go of this idea that money is inherently negative. For me, money is a neutral symbol for energetic flow. And... 
there's a lot of people in the world that are using money in a very like unconscious way and that's okay that that there's nothing you know you can do personally to affect how someone else uses money but you can change your relationship to money which is very powerful and start to vote with it you're voting with your money what you purchase you can use money to help others assist others it can be an offering of affection it can be an offering of business or alliance it can be like a tribal currency of barter and you can just reframe the way you look at it and this is something i've been in the process of fantastic fantastic we need more of that right we need more of really empowered conscious individuals that are financially savvy right because at the end of the day money is potential power potential influence um it's just more resources to put behind your mission, whatever that mission is. And so, I mean, it's really it really breaks my heart to see a lot of really aware, awesome people, healers, teachers, who are disempowered in the area of finance. And by doing so, they, they limit their impact. They limit being able to share and make a real change. So I love it. I love this, you know, for myself, of course, primarily learning and practicing and refining my relationship with it, but then seeing others on the same path and then how can we support each other and how can we, how can we live that abundant lifestyle? How can we live and really value ourselves enough to ask for what we, what we deserve, what we need. So it's uh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. We need, we need more rich hippies. Yeah, we essentially, need, <laughs> totally. We need a value system shift mm. where hippies don't hate money. Yeah, and I think this is a systemic thing that each of us individually have to deal with. It's going to shift it. Yeah, yeah. So with that, I think we'll wrap. And I just want to say thank you for your time and thank you just, for adventuring to California and taking that risk and that adventure. Yeah, well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, and yeah, so just, I mean, thank you for the hospitality and the generosity and just the dynamic, tuned in spirit that you are. Um, yeah, it takes man. one to know one, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you all for listening. I trust this has been uh, valuable, informative. If you want to hop onto the blog, onto SoundCloud, if you got questions, if things were sparked in you through this, let us know, give us some feedback, interact, and there will be detailed notes on the blog with many of the things that we mentioned, whether it be books, documentaries, resources, lots of the things that we touched on. So if you want to dive deeper into those, those are there, uh, brianhardy.ca. Look under the podcast tab. It'll be all linked up. And until next time, keep redefining reality. Much love. Well, a master of the fortress, a master of disguises. Say 
Share your stories and earn your scars. 
jump in the river 